This morning we will continue, or I will continue opening up the marriage feast, the parable of the marriage feast. And if you would, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us, and then I'll begin reading at verse 1. Let's pray. Now, blessed God, in Christ we come, we lay ourselves before you, for you are the searcher of minds and hearts and motivations and intentions. Lord, nothing is hidden from your sight, and we now, with our hands raised, Lord, we beseech you to come and examine us. Lord, we call upon you to come and instruct us and teach us sound doctrine. Come and admonish us. Lord, rebuke us if necessary. Come and show us our ways. Come and teach us, Lord, what it is to persevere in grace and truth, what it is to love righteousness, what it is to walk with our Savior daily. Come, O Lord, and instruct us and show us from your word what we need to know, Lord, and what we need to do to glorify your name. And we ask this all for the praise and the glory of our our God, our King, and our Savior. Amen. I want to begin reading at verse 1. And Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. And he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. And thus ends the reading of God's precious word. You may be seated. And beloved, as I've already mentioned to you, our Lord is in a in a very intense engagement with the religious leaders. As his hour approaches for his mock trial and crucifixion, the engagement with them becomes fiery and and very pointed. Our Lord is not 
doing this in, 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 in any way in this heart of hatred and malice, but in, in a way that he pities their ignorance and he pities their stubbornness. If you look with me back over at the end of chapter 23, you can see here even these words of Jesus after he has just rebuked them severely. In verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate for I say to you from now on, uh, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our Lord has come to gather his people and to gather those. And that's what this parable is about, that he is all throughout the history of the visible church has been gathering his people so that they might have the blessing and the fa his favor, the blessing that, that comes with having communion with him, that comes with being forgiven of their sins, that, that comes with having that right being restored and having a right relationship with him, having their lives filled with joy and that peace that only can come from the, that which is reconciled with God. And we see how stubborn Israel has been throughout her history. And yet in God, in Christ, the Father has still again come to preach to them the gospel and to call them into this beautiful and right relationship with him. Now, brothers and sisters, this morning I wish to sort of put an end uh, to the the messages on this particular parable and most of what I'm going to say this morning is in application to the other two sermons. You've heard that you've heard these things, but now we're bringing it to an application and hopefully bringing it more to a particular end so that we can benefit from it and then apply it to our lives so that we do not make the same mistakes that these religious leaders had made and led the people under them to make. The parable addresses the grievous sin of abuse of God's grace, abusing the outward means of grace, not attending to the ceremonies and in order to see Christ and in order to find Christ and in order to have their hearts sanctified and purged of sin, in order to have faith cultivated in them and strengthen their hope Strengthen their love invigorated. Rather, they had succumbed just to the outward ordinances, not the not the, the heart of it, but the more of the externals. And therefore they were guilty of hypocrisy. They never really possessed or owned, if you will, what those ceremonies, what the outward graces of the church presented to them, they never really owned it. They really denied the power of it. As Isaiah had said, they draw near 
They draw near with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And that's the result of of anyone that professes to know God, who professes to believe in Jesus Christ, who professes to be filled with the Holy Spirit, who professes a new life in Christ, and yet does not have the power of reformation in their lives, that's what we would also come to as hypocrisy. That's what our testimony is all about. And when we profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are professing to be new creations in the Lord Jesus, having been made new creations, having been cleansed and washed of our sins, having, having the law rescribed upon our hearts, meaning we have a love, a new, a renewed love for the things of God, for the word of God. And it's not fake, it's real, it's genuine, it's sincere, certainly not perfect, not in this life. And I think that's been one of those myths and one of those uh, pitfalls that Satan is able to throw out into the church, particularly with our young believers, that somehow they must do everything perfectly, and if they don't do everything perfectly, they're hypocrites. That's not hypocrisy. It is not hypocritical to recognize weaknesses. It's not hypocritical to recognize true and genuine immaturity. It's not hypocritical to recognize our own ignorance, things we don't know, admittedly. Things we need to know, things we need to study, things we need to learn, things we need to read, things we need to be committed to. That's not hypocrisy. For well, none of us have reached the climax of our salvation and will not in this life. That is yet to come. And our young saints need to know this. Because when they stumble and when they fall, they need to know there is a Savior with his hands open wide, ready to pick them up, put them in his arms and wash them of their sins and continue walking with them on the highway of holiness. We older saints need to recognize that we may grow tired of repenting of our sins because we feel ashamed, but we must. We've been at it longer and we've sinned more and well, we've stumbled more. But our Savior stands there with his arms open and he stands there ready to embrace us and pick us up and continue walking with us too along the way. So we must make sure that we don't allow these lies of the evil one to to work its way into our hearts and our minds because they seem to cause us to stumble And it's almost as if we can't get back upon our feet, and we need to recognize that. Let's look at verse 8. And then I'm going to address three different parts of the application. I'm going to address the aggravations What are these aggravations of this grace so that we can recognize it in ourselves? Then I'm going to address our duties to the grace 
these outward graces. And then I'm going to address the very last verse, for many are called and few are chosen, the blessing we have of being the chosen people of God. But let's do so. When you look at verse 8, and he said to his slaves, the, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Now, that verse may cause some of us to scratch our heads and say, well, I didn't think any of us were worthy of the gospel. So, what is being, what's it meant here? What's being taught? How are we to understand that verse? Well, there's only really one legitimate way to understand it, and that is what Jesus is saying, those who are worthy are those who are willing to embrace the original means of grace in their fullness and in their intention and their spiritual purposes. That those who are not worthy are not willing to do that. Those who are not worthy are the ones that are being condemned in the parable. Those who have abused the means of grace. Those who have used, if you will, these outward ceremonies and circumstances for their own benefit. If you, if you look, let's see. All right, look at the first book of chapter 23. And Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples. Now, this is after, again, this fierce engagement with these religious leaders. And he, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they, they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats at the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And you notice what Jesus is saying. He, th this, these are the people that he has said they're unworthy. Why are they unworthy? Because their hearts are full with self, their way. The kingdom of God is not in them. It's the kingdom of man that reigns. It's their own kingdom. It's the kingdom of the earth, not the kingdom of heaven. And in that they prove to be the sons of the evil one who is full of self, pride and arrogance. And what are these aggravations then? So that we do not find ourselves unworthy of these things. That is, let me give you another example. Turn, turn to Matthew 11. Not Matthew 11, it's Matthew 10. Where Jesus sends out his disciples 
And he tells them to go put their blessing upon those. There it is in verse 12. Look there with me. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you or heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You can see the clarification of what Jesus is meaning there when he talks about those who are not worthy, those who were not willing to sincerely and genuinely hear the word of God as it comes to the hearts and minds of sinners who are in great need of being cleansed and saved from their sins. They didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear that they were sinners. They didn't want to hear that they had this need of being cleansed of their sins. In their minds and in their own hearts, they were righteous. They were righteous by their own works and their own deeds. And yet that's what they were being condemned for. Well, let's look at these aggravations Now, these are found in the confession of faith, but I'm going to make application to the text itself, showing you the the, at least a way to use your confession as you study it, as you uh, use it uh, for devotions, particularly as you read your confession along with the Bible is a great help to you. There are four aggravations to sin given in our confession of faith. And each one of them will help us understand the intensity of Jesus' rebuke in this parable of the wedding feast. First one is a, a, a sin is aggravated by the one that's doing the offending, the one doing the offending, is the one sinning of mature age. Are they knowledgeable? Should they know better? In this case, who is Jesus rebuking? The scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests. They were guides to the people, were they not? And Jesus has rebuked them and called them blind guides to the blind, where they had been tasked to give light to the blind, to lead the blind. They could not because they themselves were blind. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. In verse 17 and following, if, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? 
And you who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? And do you not say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you abhor idols? Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. Brothers and sisters, it's a grievous thing to abuse the means of grace, but it's an even greater grievance and offense when religious leaders, pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, any of those moms and dads who are the spiritual heads of the households, superiors, in one way or another, it is an even greater offense when those who should know better do not honor the name of God and make rightful use of the means of grace. I mean, there's a hundred, hundreds of applications that we could really look at. I think I'm just going to speak in the one area of our lives. I've always had parents come up to me, young parents. And a question that I regularly received was, well, pastor, how do we uh, teach our children to love the Lord's day? Well, you must teach the children about the Lord's day who appointed it, why was it appointed, what's the use of the Lord's day, but you cannot simply just do that. See, if you do that, you do not embrace the essence of the Lord's day. What's the essence of the Lord's day? Joy, joy of salvation, happiness of reconciliation, a great, great zeal for coming and being in the presence of God with brothers and sisters, that what we must do as parents is love the Lord's day ourselves and display that to our children, that when our children see a genuine love for his day and worship and the means of grace, that they too will, it will kindle in their hearts and their small minds that they too should love what their moms and their dads love. It's imperative. Same goes for leadership. Love the worship of God, the study of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the reading of the Word of God, the embracing of the means of grace, being with our brothers and sisters. The joy of the Lord is visible and upon those who truly have it. And sometimes we are so burdened, brothers and sisters, with life. It's hard for us to, you know, uh, rise to that occasion and that's when we other brothers and sisters encourage you, love you and not judge you because things of life can be very hard but that we are there with you and that we hurt with you and we are joyful with you and that we step along beside you and we're praying for you 
brothers and sisters, do you think about how long you've sat in church? How many sermons have you heard? How many times have you read the books of the Bible? Dozens. Hundreds of sermons, thousands of sermons. Be careful. Because it's not simply the filling of your head. That's not, that's not all, that's not the whole picture. That's not, that's not the goal. The goal is to fill the head and the heart. Both, both cavities. So that we have a life that truly reflects and resembles the, the totality of the joy of the Lord. So we must, we must be concerned, beloved, about those who sin, particularly in the abuse of grace, with those who know better, when those that should know better, and the scribes and the Pharisees should have known better. The second one is who's being offended. The first one, the person offending, and the second one is who is being offended. In this case, it's God. God is being offended. Why? He's the great giver. He's the one that has given the means of grace. He's the one that instituted the family lineage in the nation of Israel through the seed of Abraham with Christ being that chief seed. God is the one who had given these outward ordinances and ceremonies so that Christ could be exhibited and typified and known so that when Christ came in that, that perfect timing that when Christ came into the world, it said, as he said, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And John 1 teaches us that he came to reveal the Father, Father to exegete him, to expose him, to fully make him known. That was the purpose of Christ, so to speak, that if you if you knew him, you'd know God. To know Christ is to know God. To know God is to know Christ. And to know the word is to know God and Christ. You go back to Romans. Chapter 2. And verse 4. Or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The means of grace, beloved, are the kindnesses of God to you, to his people, to the world, the visible church. We talked about the sacraments, right? Those sacraments of the New Testament are the Lord's Supper and baptism. These ordinances are the preaching of the Word of God, prayer, and worship. 
That these are the things, beloved, that, that God has given in his kindness to us. To those who profess him, to those who, who claim to know him and to love him and to walk with him. And yet these are the things, beloved, that if we love God, we will attend to these things and we will honor them. We will cherish them and we will give ourselves to them. We will open ourselves up and make use of them rightly. When we sin against these ordinances, when we sin against these graces, when we come lackadaisical to the word of God, to the reading of it, the preaching of it, when we come lackadaisical to the worship of God and we sit here half asleep because we're just not into the worship of God, we are sinning against his kindness. We're sinning against his kindness. As Paul said, it's the goodness, the kindness of God, the goodness of God that what leads us to repentance. You could take, beloved, in your study of the text, and you could begin just thinking about what, what is it to sin against the love of God? How do I sin against the love of God? How do I sin against the mercy of God? How do I sin against the, 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 the commandments? We know those. We, we, we're, we're really proficient in the commandments of God, right? And somehow we've forgotten about these other attributes of God that we sin against. You know, it's, it's really troubling and I'm sure we've all seen it in one form or another, but in a, in a, there's a direct correlation, I think, from the physical to the spiritual, and I think that's on purpose. That's the kindness of God, if you will. You know, when you have children that will give lip service to their parents in their presence, but they don't demonstrate a true honor and love for their parents when they're in private or when they're with others. It's ugly, sinful. It's unbecoming of a family. And yet, translate that to the spiritual family. It's unbecoming of the children of God to not be thankful for his love and mercy and not want to, talk about it, not want to testify concerning it and not want to worship him because of it. It's unbecoming. So there's all kinds of ways we can sin against God. It's not just the breaking of his commandments. We can, we can violate the very nature and the very essence of God by sinning against his love, his mercy, his goodness. That's what they were guilty of. That's how they were severe abusers of the means of grace. God had patiently called them and called them and called them and chastened them and chastened them and they were still in their evil ways. And Jesus tells them, this is, I'll take the kingdom from you and I'll give it to another bearing the fruit thereof. That's why the parable speaks to the wrath, the just wrath of God. What does he do? 
What does, what does Jesus do? He says in verse 7, the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set fire on their city. What does he do with the one that doesn't have the wedding garment, the needed wedding garment, the garment that was handed out at the door for all of the wedding guests to adorn and put on. He did not get one. He did not take one. He is bound hand and foot and thrown out into the darkness. Why? Because of the abuse of God's goodness. Because of the sinning against God's grace. He had sinned against the gracious invitation of the king. And he didn't have enough honor and respect to pick the wedding garment up at the door. And the king was offended. Thirdly, and I've already touched on it, but we will address it for the sake of our willing and just able to embrace it, and that is the nature of the offense. The nature of the offense. Turn to Matthew 11. In Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 20, we'll see the sin of the uh, sinning against the means of grace, in particular, the preaching of the gospel. And, and notice what our Lord says. And he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sodom, Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sodom in the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you not? You, it will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, brothers and sisters, it's, 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 it, this is so weighty, it grieves my heart to even preach it. of how we listen and we really don't listen. How we hear, but we don't hear. How God calls and beckons all of us for certain things and in certain times and certain places for things that he's ministering to us about and we don't hear it. That's a sin against the means of grace. And in this case, it's not just the preaching, but it was what attended the preaching of the, of the gospel. What intended, what, what, what aided the preaching of the gospel was the miracles Jesus had performed. So he added 
to the very power of the preaching, if you will, by the miracles that he had performed. So they had super added reason to do what? Repent. Believe. And turn from their ways to him. And they did not. And these words of Jesus should be etched upon our hearts because, beloved, we should be mindful to take the means of grace seriously. They, they are, these are not options for the Christian life. They're not. They're called the means of grace because they are a means of salvation. They are a means by which our salvation is realized in everyday purpose. Yes, Jesus saves. Jesus cleanses us. It's the means of grace that perseveres us. It's the means of grace that continues to sanctify us. It's the means of grace, listen to me, that sort of hedges you in and keeps you saved and being saved. That's why God gave them to you. That's why God gave them to the visible church that we would use them and that we would employ them as we await what? That day. That from Lord's day to Lord's day, we would constantly refresh ourselves and remind ourselves of that day that's coming. That day. That day when Jesus comes back and reconciles everything. And history as we know it ends and then a new, a new era begins of glory. The fourth one, which again I think is so important are the circumstances of the sin. So we've looked at the ones doing the sinning, we've looked at the ones offended and now we look at the circumstances. Look at, when we look at the text, when you look at the text, Jesus describes this, this outward glory, if you will, this, this, the outward visible church as a wedding feast. This is the church. This is the kingdom of God. That's what he says. And Jesus uh, and Jesus spoke to them again in, in parables saying, and the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He's describing, he's comparing what? The visible church, if you will, to a wedding feast for a son that a king gave, not just anybody, not just a neighbor, are not even as the other two parables, not just a father in the sense of that's what he was. He was a father. He told his two sons to go work, and one said yay, one said no. Or even a landowner, which was the next parable. No, no, this is a king. This is the invitation of the sovereign, the superior of all of the realm. And Jesus is rebuking them. He, he, he is describing the grievous nature of their sin because, because to, 
They had these oracles. They had these ceremonies. They had these ordinances. They had been given these things. They had had this this glorious outward, if you will, they had all the access to salvation they could possibly want. They were up to their eyes, if you will, in grace, and they couldn't see it. The circumstance... Here's the circumstance to these particular Pharisees and scribes and priests. Who's rebuking them? Jesus, the Son of God, the Word incarnate, who said, I have come to do the will of my Father. If you see me, you see him. If you hear me, you hear him. I come not to speak my words, but his words of him who sent me. I've come to declare God because I am God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the word was with God. God is in their midst. And they've challenged his authority. They've challenged his, his, his cleansing of the temple. They've challenged his teaching. They despise his disciples. They despise the teaching. Oh, why do your disciples not do these things that we do? Why do they not wash their hands before they eat? Why do they not wash the cups, the outside of the cups, before they take a drink? Why do they, why, why, why? they constantly challenging the Son of God. And I think that's why the parable speaks of, of in verse 8, his, that, or verse 7, if you will, that he sent his armies and he destroyed those murderers and he set their city on fire. I mean, there are many scholars, and I think there can be a case made that this even is a prophetic verse out of the parable speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. You think about the sin in John chapter 13, verse 27. They're sitting at just a few hours away from this debate, this argument. Jesus is going to be having the Passover with his disciples not long from this time. Judas is reclined at the table with Jesus And John tells us that it's in the presence of the Son of God that Judas is filled with Satan. That Judas's heart is filled with hate for the Son of God. Hate. For what does Jesus tell him to do and do quickly? Go do this, what you are about to do. He's going to go betray Christ. 
in the very presence of the Son of God, in the very, in reclining at the very table that Jesus is speaking the words of love and grace, and he's preparing his disciples for his departure. He's preparing them for this communion with them. His very heart at that moment, at that place, is filled with hate. Hatred for the very one speaking the words of love. That's a grievous sin. You know, I've I've watched several interactions with street preachers preaching the gospel in some of these very dark places and there being attacked, uh, sometimes physically, I mean, most of the time verbally, but sometimes physically by, uh, uh, you know, abortionists, by those who support abortion, those who support the uh, uh, homosexual agenda, uh, those who support all kinds of uh, transgenderism, the abuse of children, And the preachers are quoting scripture. They're quoting scripture. They are quoting scripture. And oftentimes they are calling them to repentance in the love of God in Christ. And they get, it gets hotter and madder and more furious. The fever pitch of hatred for those words. Well, brothers and sisters, what duty is required of us? Well, as I've already stated, we should make ourselves worthy. How so? How so? By prepare to make use of the means of grace, rightful use of the means of grace. So we don't abuse them. That we solemnly and with genuine interest come to the reading of Scripture, to the preaching of Scripture, to the study of Scripture. That we genuinely come with hearts of joy to sing His praise. That we genuinely come with an encouraging word for our brothers and sisters. Where we genuinely and sincerely want to adorn ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. Where we genuinely want to be with the people of God. Where we genuinely want to see the church thrive and grow where we want to give our testimony where we want to hear testimony where we genuinely and sincerely see these things oh they are nothing in the eyes of the world but they are great in the appointment of our God to us the world think this is foolishness they don't know they don't know they don't know what they don't know They're dead spiritually, Paul says. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They are are part of the kingdom of darkness. Satan is their father. They don't know what they don't know. They've not tasted the grace of God like you have. They don't know why you enjoy these things. They don't know why you long for next Lord's Day already. They don't know. 
But brothers and sisters, the way to do this is to come and humble ourselves, is to lay ourselves out there, is to adorn ourselves with what God, what God has offered, and that is justification, that it is right, that is to declare us righteous, that we would robe ourselves in the right. I, look, I deny my own righteousness, and I robe myself in Christ's righteousness. I have nothing to offer. I am nothing apart from the Lord. I am dead in my sins. I am dead in trespass. As I belong to the family of Satan. I need adoption. I need, I need the love of God. I need to be remedied. I need to be cleansed. I need to be given a new heart. I need a new mind. I need eyes to see. I need ears to hear. I need these things. And I need to grow in these things because I haven't arrived. I need to keep hearing keep seeing keep watching i need to keep feeling i need to keep my heart open and embracing the things of god i need to keep digesting scripture i need to keep under i, I need i need i need what grace of god you know what we don't we don't believe in a reformed faith You know, the idea once saved, always saved. Once you make a profession of faith, you're in. Don't worry about it. We, we reject that idea, though we understand the concept. Because the true and genuine idea is what I've already stated. We're constantly making decisions for Christ every day, all day. We're constantly laying ourselves out there. We're constantly seeing our need and we're constantly embracing him as the remedy for our deficiencies and, uh, and, and, and brokenness. The Pharisees wouldn't do that. But many of Jesus' followers did and particularly the Gentile church, when you read the book of Acts, when Paul turned from the synagogue, when he was run out of town by the Jews, he would begin preaching to the Gentiles. And the Bible tells us over and over and over in the book of Acts that they embraced the preaching of the gospel. They embraced Christ. That's what we must do. Now, quickly... Verse 14, how, how does verse 14, how, where does it find its place in our theology? Well, these verses are in the context of the parable. In the context of the parable, Jesus is condemning the, the scribes and the priests. He's condemning, if you will, the nation of Israel and the, for generations and therefore, he says, for many are called. Many are outwardly called. Many have set under the calling of the gospel. Many have set under the ordinances of God. And all of these ordinances, all of these graces, all of these ceremonies did what? They typified Christ and our need for Christ. And they typified other things too. But they definitely typified Christ. Few are chosen. Now, I guess this is the blessing, brothers and sisters, we have as God's chosen. Because God's chosen are those who made themselves worthy. 
God's chosen are the one not, not saving yourself. Opening up by the Spirit and the grace of God, Ezekiel 37, that the Spirit of God comes in us and does what? Puts the Word in us and opens up our lives that we begin to what? We begin to desire the means of grace. We begin to desire the Lord, desire God. We desire the Word. We desire the, the Lord's Supper. We desire, we want to be baptized. We want these things. We want these things to be true of us. We want to be members of the church. We want it to be an outward sign and testimony that we are believers of God in His Son, Jesus Christ all by the work of the Spirit of God in us. But we're talking about what it looks like, what's visible to us. We can't see the Holy Spirit in us, but we can see our labors, loves, and work. The things we talk about, the things we put our hands to, we can see all of that. And that's important. Just as hatred has a visible nature to it. So does love. The things you love. The things you're passionate about. The things you're interested in. We have the blessing, beloved. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, how do I know? How do I know? I mean, you, you talk a lot about the elect. How do I know? Well, look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Practice what things? Look at verse 5. Now for this very reason also applying all the diligence to your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kind kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Brothers and sisters, you're not to just sit around and go, I don't know if I'm chosen. I don't know if I'm the elect. Respond to the gospel. Repent of your sins. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and then begin adding to these things that Peter said. Make, you make, the verse, you make your calling and election sure by applying these things into your life. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the duty we have. It's a tall order. And that's why you need the church. You're not, it wasn't ever intended for us to do it by ourselves. We have a body. We have a church. And we come all with the same interest, all with the same 
goal in mind is to be, to persevere, add these qualities to our lives so that we end with that reward of everlasting life. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let us not be guilty of abusing God's grace because it is a very grievous sin. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against the very offer of salvation. And it's unbecoming. It's unbecoming of people who sit in church to die and go straight to hell. It's unbecoming. To be in the presence of all of these graces and to perish in your sins. Embrace the Lord. See to it that these things are evident in your life and you will not be useless but fruitful. Let's pray. Now, Father, do bless us. Father, take this word and apply it to our hearts and our minds. Help us see and understand. Fill our head with true and sound knowledge. Lord, let us know that it's not enough just to know things, but that we must love these things. We must embrace these things. They must become part of who we are. That like our God who is love, who is compassion, who is mercy, that we too would be so affected by your blessing of sanctification, Lord, that we would be known by these graces. We would be known as being kind and loving, truthful, just lovers of truth, haters of evil. Oh, Lord, come and do your saving work in our lives. Come, Lord, to this body. Mature us, raise us up, Lord, make us strong. Give us the, that, that hope of salvation, Lord, where we are all ministering and doing the work of the ministry together, loving one another, Lord, resting upon your word, resting upon your graces, Lord, continuing to embrace all that you show us, all that you reveal to us in Christ's name. We pray, amen.